Good morning. And it's again in James chapter 5, verse 16 to 18. And we're going to continue talking about confession and also our prayer life. The message is called The Purpose of Confession, Liberation from Sin. But we're also going to be talking about effective prayer life as well. Just to add on and continue what we did last week. So let's do what we usually do. You ready for your memory verse? See if you can do it without looking. All right. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Father, Lord, we can't do anything without you. So help me to teach only and say only what is true and what is going to be edifying and constructive for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read James 5, verses 16 to 18. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So, effective prayer life. And I want to talk about this morning, first off, praying according to Scripture. So, we've talked about this before, but now is a good time to explain it again, and in a bit more depth. So last week, we read how Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. So he was just like us, with all our weaknesses and flaws. But when he was walking with the Lord, when he was practically righteous, he had a very powerful or strong prayer life. Why? Because his prayers were effective and fervent. They were energized and made operational by God. And that word in the Greek, as we learned last week, was energio. So this week, I'd like to point out another very important reason as to why Elijah's prayers were so effective. And the reason I'm going to expand on this week is Elijah read the Bible prayerfully and prayed according to Scripture. So when we read the Bible prayerfully, we have soft hearts and we are transformed by the renewing power of the Word of God. When we humble ourselves like this, the effects of our Bible reading go far beyond just head knowledge. Now, when we pray or when we worship, we need to be careful that we don't go to either extreme, just looking for what the Spirit is leading or just looking to what the Bible says. So Jesus gives us the balance here. John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, he says, talking to the woman at the well in Samaria, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So, to worship in spirit you could say that it's like the effective and fervent prayer life, like we talked about last week. True worship must be made operational or capable or energized by God the Holy Spirit. To worship in truth, and this is a quote from David Guzik, to worship in truth means you worship according to the whole counsel of God's word, especially in light of the New Testament revelation. So it's a balance of being energized and empowered and made operational or capable by the Holy Spirit and looking to the Word of God to determine what is right and true. So basically, we aren't praying or worshipping according to the will of God unless we are both praying according to Scripture and we are open to the Spirit's leading in our lives. And it's not good to deny either of those and focus too much one way or the other. So why are the scriptures so important? Well, they reveal what is right and true. 
The Bible is the final authority on truth. How do we know? How do we know that the Bible is the final authority on truth? Because God cannot lie, right? And every word in the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. You can see 2 Timothy 3.16. So basically, every word in the Bible is true. It's written by God. It's a true record of everything that it talks about. Now, also, the Bible is God's love letter to us. It reveals the heart of God to us and therefore shows us the right motive by which we should pray. That's really important as well. Now, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? John 14.26 says, But when the Father sends the Advocate or Helper, Parakletos, as my representative, that is, the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. So the Holy Spirit teaches us and reminds us of the words of God as recorded in the scripture, and the result is what? A gift that the world cannot take away. The peace of God. And verse 26, he teaches us everything and he reminds you of everything I've told you. So basically that's the role of the Holy Spirit as we're sitting here this morning. We're being taught by the Spirit and he's reminding us of everything that we've read and studied in the Word previously. Romans 8.26 teaches us that the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us as to what we should pray. So, last week we learned that we need to be practically righteous for God to hear our prayers. But also, the more we know the Word of God, then the more effective our prayers will be because we're better able to pray according to Scripture, that is, according to God's will. We'll have a better understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And to turn that around and make it more clear, another way of saying this is that the Holy Spirit can't bring to remembrance the parts of the Bible that we have never read or studied. So the more we know the Bible, the more specific and directed our prayers can become. Now, back to Elijah. The example that James gives us in James 15, 17-18 is Elijah telling King Ahab that it would not rain for the next few years. And we read that story last week in 1 Kings 17 and 18. But how could, and someone actually asked this question later on, how could Elijah be so convinced or sure that this would happen? Well, Elijah read his Bible. The holding back of the rain was exactly what God said he would do if the people were disobedient and worshipped other gods. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen to 17 says, But be careful. Don't let your heart be deceived so that you turn away from the Lord and serve and worship other gods. Remember, that's exactly what Ahab was doing with Jezebel, worshipping Baal and Astaroth and other gods. Verse 17 continues, If you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the sky and hold back the rain and the ground will fail to produce its harvests. Then you'll quickly die in that good land that the Lord is giving you. So, Elijah knew the scriptures, and therefore he could confidently tell Ahab that it would not rain, because that's exactly what the Lord had previously said would happen when the nation was worshipping false gods. So, here we have the truth. But what about the spirit, right? We talked about worshipping spirit and truth, praying in God to spirit and truth, right? The other thing Elijah needed was the timing. Okay, Elijah needed to hear from the Spirit that this is the right time and the right place to tell Ahab. So we need to know what is true and then we need to know how to apply it. So that's how we pray in spirit and truth. So Elijah knew the truth, he had read the scriptures in Deuteronomy, but then he needed to know how to apply that truth. He needed to know when to talk to Ahab. And so he was led by the truth of the word and by the Spirit of God. 
And I had this thought, maybe Elijah was reading this section of the scriptures when he was prompted by God to pray and talk to Ahab. Maybe he was reading you know, the scroll of Deuteronomy and then God put in his heart, go tell that to Ahab. Imagine what you would have thought if you were Elijah. You're kidding me. So, this next section is more to do with our personal devotions. And it's application on praying as we read the Word. And this was really an, an encouragement to me as I was studying it, and hopefully it's an encouragement to you as well. So, reading the Bible is a conversation. It's not read and then pray, but pray as you read. Now, let me illustrate this by a little story, okay? If I'm talking to my wife and I say to her, I'm going to talk for 10 minutes and then I'll be quiet and you can talk for 10 minutes and then that's it. Is that good communication? We do, it doesn't work like that, does it? When you have a conversation, it's back and forth. And so it is with God. Now, until very recently, I used to feel guilty and wonder why I struggled so much to have a separate time of prayer following my Bible reading. I had this expectation that I should read the Bible and then pray, like do this and then do this, okay? Because that's what I've been taught in church previously, you see, from a long time ago when I was a kid. But at the same time, I was really enjoying my quiet time and my Christian walk was, was going okay. So what was happening was I just couldn't help but keep on wanting to read the Bible until the very last minute. I just couldn't stop. So, well, I just can't stop. I just, I just want to keep going. But now I understand, I realize that most of my prayer happens as I'm reading. And I'll show you why. I'll show you how. As I'm reading the Bible, I'm asking God to help me understand it. And I often find myself mentally repeating back to God what I think he's trying to teach me. Now, if you're talking about communication, that's called active listening. So as I read through my chapters, I find myself reading a particular verse or verses again and again as the Holy Spirit continues to reveal God's truth to me using those verses. And then when I feel that God has given me the understanding or has used them to speak to me, I move on to the next bit. Now, some days I only get through half a chapter. And also, as I'm reading, God often puts people on my mind. Those verses will remind me of something or someone, and I'll stop to pray for them. And then I'll keep reading. And then, of course, as we've been talking about, there's sin, you know. As I'm reading those verses, it'll convict me of sin. The law of God, the Bible, is a lamp. It illuminates our faults and it shows us where we need to change. And so, what do I do? I stop. I confess that sin right there and then. That's what I should do. I'm not saying I do it all the time. My family knows that I can be stubborn sometimes. God knows that too. And the other thing that God often reveals to me as I'm reading the Bible is what ministry opportunities he may have for me in the near future. It's not every day, but... Often, the people God shows me, the people I can bless or encourage with the truth I have just learned or been reminded of as I'm reading the Bible that day. So basically, it's not just me getting, 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 receiving, but, oh, this will be good for this person or this situation. So what's happening here? I believe that the Word of God is, or me reading the Word of God, is focusing me on God and directing my prayers. So if I'm reading the word prayerfully, I'm putting to practice Jude 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. So what builds our faith? It's the, it's the word of God. Romans 10:17. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So we encourage each other. These verses in Jude say we encourage each other in our most holy faith. And Romans ten seventeen says it's by the word of God. So how do we do it? We share with each other day by day what God has been showing us in the word of God. 
You see, it's not just for ourselves, it's for each other. Then we pray in the power of the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to help us pray according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit helps us to apply the Word of God. So we pray according to the will of God. Now, a little disclaimer here, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be dedicated times of prayer. Okay. Now, in our families, we have dedicated times of prayer where we just pray at church. 9.30, we have a dedicated time of prayer before the service. We finish Bible study with a dedicated time of prayer. In the car I'm driving, it's a bit dangerous to read the Bible then, so I just pray. Going for a prayer walk, again, it's a bit dangerous to read and walk. You know, you'll end up flat in your face. So it's pretty wise just to just pray, you know. So my point here, the point I'm making is that when we read the Bible, it should be a conversation and not just us seeking to gain more knowledge of the Bible. In addition, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to guide our prayers. Now, I've got a fairly long excerpt from John Coulson's commentary on James 5, 16 to 18, and you realize that what I've been saying is kind of a repeat of this. But for me, it was like an eye-opener. I had all these expectations of what I should be doing in my quiet time, and I was really quite bound up in my own expectations, and the Spirit was leading me in a different way, you know, and that's why I was feeling this guilt. So now I feel like I'm free. So I'm just going to read this excerpt from John Corson's commentary on James 5, 16 to 18. It says, Elijah knew the word, was submitted to the word, and prayed according to the word. So too, we must understand that to pray effectively is to combine prayer with reading the word. You will never again snooze through a service or doze off during devotions if you are praying while you're listening. That is, when a point comes to you that you know is convicting you, talk to the Lord about it right then. For years I didn't know this. I thought the right way to fellowship with God was to read a chapter or two in the Word and then pray. But that is as silly as if I called Tammy and said, we've got to talk. And then I proceeded to talk for 10 minutes straight, talk, 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 before saying, now you talk, at which point she'd talk, talk, talk to me. That's the way I thought I was supposed to communicate with the Lord. Okay, Father, I know you speak to me through your word, so I'll listen, 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 listen. Done. Now it's my turn. Pray, 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 pray. (laughs) I'm not saying you can't do it that way, but there's a much better way. That is, as you are reading the word, a phrase or two will strike you and you will pause right then to talk it over with the Father. You pray about it right then. Then you read a verse or two or three more until something else stirs your thinking or strikes your heart. You pause, then talk to the Lord again. With ten thousands of precepts, principles and promises in this book, I guarantee you'll never have a boring devotional time if you pause, then talk to the Lord again. With tens of thousands of precepts, principles and promises in this book, I guarantee you'll never have a boring devotional time if you pray with open Bible and talk to the Father about what you read. So too, if you go to church on Sunday morning or Wednesday evening, or for us Friday, (laughs) and say, every time a point hits me, confuses me or stirs me, I'm going to pray about it right then. Bible studies will never ever again be drowsy for you because it's just impossible to talk to the Father as you're taking in the Word and find yourself bored and slumbering. If you abide in me, stay close to me, and my words abide in you, Jesus declared. You shall ask whatever you will, and it will be done. See John 15:7. If my word is stirring in you and you're staying close to me, you'll be able to ask whatever you want as you pray biblically, and it will happen. You'll see. To pray effectively is to pray biblically. So, that's the end of John Corson's excerpt from his commentary there. So, may the Lord bless your morning, lunchtime, and evening devotions this week and forevermore. And Psalm 55, 16-17 is something that I come back to every now and again. As for me, I will call upon the Lord, and the Lord shall save me. Evening, And morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. So again, when it comes to devotions and reading your word, 
It's not just, uh, oh, I'm just going to do it in the morning, then the rest of the day forget about God. The point here that David is making is that our communication with God goes on through the day. Evening, morning, at noon. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to pray to God at morning tea time or afternoon tea. It just means that it's a continuous thing, yeah? Now, changing topic. We're changing from prayer and we're going back to confession. And I want to finish talking about confession. And the main purpose of confession is liberation from sin. And so my goal here is to remind us of the purpose of confession so that we have the correct understanding of why we need to confess our sins and also to try and explain how the confession of a sin to the church liberates or frees us from that sin. So what we covered last week and what we need to absolutely remember and understand is that our sin does not affect our positional right standing with God. As born-again Christians, we are and always will be forgiven. We will always have open access to the throne room of God where we will receive help anytime we need it. But remember that our sin does affect our relationships with God and each other. So, one of my favorite quotes is John Stott, and I've lost it, but he said something similar to, at any moment we are as close to God as we choose to be. So at any moment, we are as close to God as we choose to be. We get to choose, by confessing our sin, to draw near to God. And the more we do that, the closer we get. The more we deal with our sin, the better we deal with our sin, then the closer we are to the Lord. So there's four main points or principles that will sum up what we've learned over the last few weeks about confession of sin. And we'll also add some more as well. So... Firstly, confession promotes prayer. Secondly, confession provides protection. Thirdly, confession prevents pride. And fourthly, confession produces praise. So we go through these one at a time. Confession promotes prayer. James 5.16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So what is James teaching us here? If I don't confess my weaknesses struggles, and or sins, then the rest of the body of Christ won't know that I'm struggling in that area, and therefore they won't be praying for me as effectively as I could. Now notice I've added in here weaknesses and struggles. It might not be a sin that we're struggling with. It could be anything. It could be a weakness. It could be a financial struggle, whatever. Confess it. It's not I'm sinning with my finances. I'm really lacking in my finances. Would you please pray with me? And it gives the body an opportunity to help. So in the body of Christ, when one hurts, we all hurt. And you can see 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Now this is talking about compassion. We all hurt. We show compassion. Compassion is more than just feelings. Feeling sorry for someone is just sympathy. And that has no legs. It has no feet. Compassion has hands and feet which are motivated by empathy. If the body doesn't know that I'm struggling with something or I've been hurt by something or someone, then they are not able to demonstrate compassion. They are not able to help me by praying for me and helping me in other practical ways. So as a result, I continue struggling and remain weak in the area of my life. So confession promotes prayer. Never underestimate the power of prayer. By failing to admit our weaknesses, confess our sins or ask for help in any way, we are robbing the body of Christ of the opportunity and privilege of interceding for us before the throne of God, and we therefore fail to receive all the help that God desires to give us. See, God is going to use the body to help us. God uses the body to help each of us individually. So, secondly, confession provides protection and is protection from condemnation and shame. And John Corson's got a good quote on this. He says, Confession provides protection from potential hostility. The enemy seeks to cause whatever I'm struggling with, whatever you're wrestling with, to be exposed. That's his method of operation. He sucks us into sin, then publicizes our sin to bring consternation, embarrassment, and division. Now, 
just adding in here, this is what shame is. Okay, Fear of our sin being exposed. Or what will people think of me? Yeah? And John Corson continues, As Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, Luke records that the other 11 disciples stood with him. Acts 2.14 So it's really important you get that they stood with him. Keep in mind, it had only been a month or so since Peter had denied even knowing Jesus. Thus, by standing with him, the other disciples were in effect saying, We know Peter's history, yet we continue to stand by him. So pipe down, you who would be hostile and critical of him. That's what confession does. It disarms the enemy. So that's the end of John Corson's quote there. So basically, Satan can't shame and condemn us when we have already shared with others our weaknesses or our sin. He can't use a, what will the others think about you if they find out? Shame and condemnation trick if the others already know and are already supporting, encouraging and praying for you. Does that make sense? So that point there was confession provides protection from Satan's condemnation and shame. Now the third point, confession prevents pride. And now we're going to talk about the fear of man. The fear of man is a snare. The fear of man will keep us in sin. Pride and our reputation can and will keep us in perpetual slavery to sin. Why? Because it will keep us from confessing our sin. Why? Because confessing our sins to others will destroy the fake reputational image that we take so much pride in and are so careful to protect. I can understand this because I struggle with this myself. So our reputation is what others think about us, their opinion of us. We can easily create a false reputation by deliberately acting a certain way around people, and even different ways around different people. We can do this by hiding what we would really like to do and instead doing something we don't really want to do. And people get a wrong idea of who we are. So examples, I may want people to think I'm a really awesome basketball player or smarter or tougher than I really am. And that's pretty common in the world, you know. Everyone wants to be the best. But for the Christian, the great temptation is to make people think that I'm even more spiritual than I really am, that I'm closer to God than I really am. I'm a better person than I really am. But here's the problem. If my reputation does not accurately reflect who I really am, then I am a hypocrite. I am literally an actor pretending to be someone whom I am not. So in the Bible times, you see the amphitheaters all around the old Roman Empire there. The actors back then would hold a mask in front of their face and they would act and talk in a way that would represent the person in the story or play that they were acting out. So we can think of a false reputation as us creating a mask and walking around behind it, acting in the character of the person we want to be, the imaginary person we would like others to think that we are. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we can think of a false reputation as us creating a mask and walking around behind it, acting in the character of the person we want to be, the imaginary person we would like others to think that we are. So why would I want to create a false impression about myself? Well, it's pride. It's our sinful nature. Our sinful nature is prideful and it always wants people to think well about us. We want people to think that we are good people. The natural or built-in desire of our sinful human nature wants or desires people to admire us, to praise us, to affirm us. Therefore, we go about seeking the approval or praise of people. See, it all comes from our sinful nature. When this happens, we become man-pleasers and not God-pleasers, and despite our best intentions, right? What did Jesus say? Watch and pray, for the Spirit is willing, but the 
flesh is weak, yeah? The only way to escape this prideful satanic trap is to willingly destroy our fake reputation. How are you going to do that? You've got to be honest. You've got to confess your sin. Be real, genuine. We must be real with people and not be an actor or a hypocrite. The opposite of hypocrite is genuine. And this is especially important with our church family, our biological family and our close friends. Why? Because they can see straight through us, right? Don't fool yourself. You can't fool people who are close to you. Like it or not, they can always see straight through us. They know if we are being fake. So, for example, if I'm struggling with stealing, but no one knows it, and I'm concerned about what people might think about me, then I will keep it to myself and just hope that nobody finds out that I'm a thief, that I've got this problem with stealing stuff. In the meantime, I'm feeling guilty, and while I may try to stop stealing, I will inevitably keep on stealing because my spirit is weak. I'm in sin. I can't stop. I'm not getting help. So, the scriptures have a lot to say about the fear of man being a snare, something that will trip us up as we walk according to old man or our sinful human nature. Proverbs 29.25 from the New King James Version says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And that safe means literally secure or set on high. Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. So what does it mean to be safe or secure, set on high? Because if you're trying to protect a reputation that isn't real, are you going to feel secure or insecure? (laughs) You're going to be constantly insecure, constantly fearful of someone finding out the truth. Now, I had a bit of fun here. I've got some quotes from different commentators. And they're talking about and explaining and applying what the fear of man means in Proverbs 29.25. So the first one is from David Guzik. Many people of good heart, but not enough courage, live in bondage to the fear of man. They worry far too much about what people think, instead of first being concerned about what God and wisdom say, and what integrity would lead them to do. This is a snare that traps many people. Again, that's David Guzik. The next one is from a commentator called Garrett. The fear of man describes any situation in which one is anxious about not offending another person. For example, someone might be afraid to oppose the unethical actions of a superior out of fear of losing a job. This verse tells the reader, to do what is right and trust the outcomes to Yahweh. The next quote comes from a commentator called Bridges. And therefore they do not ask, what should I do? But what will my friends think of me? They cannot brave the finger of scorn. Oh, for deliverance from this principle of bondage. The next one is from a commentator called Clark. How often this has led weak men those sincere in their general character, to deny their God and renounce or reject his people. Now, there's a few examples here. King Saul. Do you know the story of King Saul? He was a people pleaser. And the reason that God rejected him is because he sought the praise of men more than the praise of God. He did things to please the people and in doing so he disobeyed God and God had to reject him. And then there's Aaron. And what did Aaron do? Moses up in the mountain. Do you remember the story? And the people said, make us a God. And Aaron didn't say, no, no, this is wrong. You know, Moses up in the hill getting the law. You wait until he comes back. No, he said, oh, really? Oh, well, okay, I'll do that for you. You know, and so he bowed down to the will of the people. And then there's Peter. What did Peter say? I'll stand up with you, Jesus. I'll die for you. The little servant girl says, Excuse me, sir. Aren't you one of the disciples? No, I'm not the disciple. Yeah, and so, you know, this little girl, the servant girl, and he can't even stand up 
to her. That's how weak he is. A fear of man, because he's got all these other people around him, you see. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. He's got all the other Jews around, and he doesn't want to be seen as being with Jesus, because that would bring shame on him then, because Jesus was being tried. Virgin says, It was the fear of men that caused Pilate's name to become infamous in the history of the world and of the Church of God. And it will be infamous to all eternity. The fear of men led him to slay the Saviour. Take care that it does not lead you to do something of the same kind. Remember what Pilate did? He pleased the people. The people demanded that Pilate kill Jesus. And Pilate said, he's done nothing wrong. What he should have done, he said, he's done nothing wrong. You can't kill him. Go away. But because he wanted to please the people, he handed Jesus over to them. Spurgeon has another quote. Why? I have known some who were afraid even to give away a tract. They were as much alarmed as though they had to put their hand into a tiger's mouth. (laughs) What's this person going to think of me if I hand them a tract? (gasps) So how many times have we been worried about what people will think about us? Yeah? This is the fear of man. It's a sin because we should be more concerned about what God thinks of us. Now, I'm going to read some verses from Romans. Romans 14, 10 to 13. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, bend to me, and every tongue will declare allegiant praise to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. So what's going to happen when we get to heaven? We stand before the beam of seat judgment and who's going to be there? Who are we standing in front of? Who are we giving account to? Is it it my wife? She's out of the picture. Is it my kids? No, they're out of the picture too. Is it my basketball team? No, they're gone. Is it my work friends? No, they're gone. Okay? The only person I'm standing in front of is Jesus Christ. He is the one that I must stand before. The scripture said there in Romans 14, 10 and 12, remember, We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. We will give a personal account to Jesus Christ, our judge. He's going to judge us for reward, not condemnation. But we still have to give account. So it really doesn't matter what people think about me down here because what they think or believe about me now is only temporary and it will not count when it really matters. Does that make sense? It will not count when it really matters. When I'm standing before Jesus, all the other opinions from all these other people, it does not matter. Who cares what they think or what they thought? It will not have any weight. It will not have any influence. It will not have any bearing on my eternity. So who cares what they think? Now, consider that there will be times when nobody will fully understand our true motives for doing certain things, at least not right away. There are times when walking in obedience to the will of God will cause us to appear to others as being crazy or sinful or selfish or illogical or impulsive. So an example here is when Marissa and I told our family that we were going to live in America for two years to study at Bible college, they said, you're crazy. God can't be telling you that. And we were blacklisted for a time and it didn't go down well. So I'm going to use Jesus now as a great example of what it means for us to be a God pleaser and not a man pleaser. Jesus demonstrated that one of the great costs and sacrifices that we will have to make or have to pay as we follow the will of God and obey God, is give up our reputation. 
we need to be willing to give up our reputation. What I mean is we need to give up our reputation before men in order to have a good reputation before God. So the Bible does say that as Jesus grew up, he grew up in favour with God and men, Luke 2.52. But as soon as he began his ministry, as soon as he began convicting people of their sin, and he made the claim to be God, things radically changed. Let's have a look at Mark 3.21. One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, or deranged, they said. So, just imagine what would have happened if Jesus was more concerned about what his family thought about him instead of what the Father thought about him. He would have never been able to be obedient to what the Father was calling him to do. You see, who we fear or want to impress the most are the ones whom we will ultimately try to please or impress. They're the ones we will obey. If I fear men, then I'm not fearing God. And if I'm not fearing God, then I will not be able to please or obey God. Again, I will only end up pleasing or obeying the one who I fear the most. So what did it cost Jesus to follow the will of the Father? Well, it cost him his reputation with his family, at least, as we just read in those verses. Now, on a human level, that hurts. On a human level, it hurts to lose our reputation, for our family to think we're nuts to think we're crazy. But why was Jesus willing to suffer the ridicule and shame? Because he decided beforehand that he would only do those things that please the Father. He made that decision in his life, I will only do those things that please the Father. But Jesus' family weren't the only ones to misunderstand him. John eight twenty eight twenty nine. So Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, so when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am God. I'll read that again. When you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am God. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me, and the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. So, Jesus lived his whole life, basically his whole life, being misunderstood, misrepresented, ridiculed, mocked, and slandered by basically everyone around him, including his enemies, his disciples, and even his family. But to him, it was like water off a duck's back because he cared more about his reputation before the Father. He wanted to have the approval of the Father more than he cared about his approval before men. So, think about this. If we're seeking the approval of people, are we ever going to be able to please everybody? No. Okay. So it's a waste of time to try and please one person. You're going to displease another person. You're going to offend someone else. They're going to feel left out. They're going to feel you're not doing what they want to do, what they think you should do. And so you're going to live this life of tension where you're trying to please this person and trying to please that person. I've known people in my family who are much like that and they're miserable. Jesus said, I always do what pleases him. And as a result, verse 29 of John 8, and the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me for I always do what pleases him. We will always have one who loves us and understands us, and that is the Father. If we're doing what pleases Him, we know that we have this relationship with God, and even if anyone or everyone else doesn't understand, God does. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me, and the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases Him. So, 
our attitude should be, you know what, if people don't understand me now, that's okay. But I want to make sure that I have the approval of God. Because when I stand before him at the beam of seat, that's all that matters. Now, Paul, the example of Paul, Paul was another one who people accused of being crazy or out of his mind. 2 Corinthians 5, 13 to 15. If it seems we are crazy, and I've added here, because we are doing the will of God. Not because we're being dumb, but because we're doing the will of God. It is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Christ's love controls us. So basically, what Paul is saying here, whether you think we're crazy or whether you think we're in our right mind, we're motivated by God. We're motivated by God's love, so we don't care what you think. And then in verse 15, it says, He died for everyone, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So living for Christ includes doing what pleases him, and not what pleases other people or ourselves. So if we do this, what Paul was doing, we live for Christ, we're motivated by his love, then we will not create and maintain a fake reputation that we hide behind. So again, Paul was saying in a polite way to the believers there in Corinth, I don't care what you think of us. Crazy or sane, what matters to me is to please God. The love of Christ motivates and controls me and not the fear of men. Quote from John Corson. Although we're so careful to cultivate a certain image, the Lord has ways of making sure it never lasts because pride leads to destruction and a haughty spirit to a fall. Proverbs 16.18 Confession prevents pride and therefore prevents an otherwise tragic and painful fall. End of John Corson's quote there. So, the summary so far concerning the purpose of confession. Confession promotes prayer, confession provides protection, and confession prevents pride. Now, the last one is a fairly quick one. It's confession produces praise. But this is quick, but it's important. So another quote from John Corson here. The Church of Jesus Christ is the only place I know where people come together and admit they're a bunch of losers who have problems. Go to the Rotary Club or the Golf Club or the political fundraisers and you're not going to see a group of people saying, we're idiots, we failed again, we dropped the ball. It just doesn't happen that way. In every other organisation, people get together and say, aren't we great? But we, the church, come together to say, isn't God gracious? That he would use people like us with all our faults and failings is nothing short of amazing. John Corson continues, Sin will lose its grip if you take seriously this command, this invitation to confess and pray for one another. Whatever you do, know this. You are forgiven and you can experience liberation if you confess your faults to one another. I love the Lord. I love the theology of being forgiven. I love the practicality of confession. I'm so glad I'm saved. I'm glad you are too. And that's the end of his quote there. So, why does confession produce praise? Because once we confess our sins, then we naturally begin to praise God for his mercy and his grace and his patience and his love and his goodness and especially the amazing gift of Jesus, our substitute, dying in our place. And we also praise God for the freedom from sin that he grants us and for the beautiful and sincere relationships that we enjoy with God and with other believers when we are real or genuine. So I've just basically said, confession is short-term pain for long-term gain. All right? Confession of our sin, our weaknesses, and our struggles is short-term pain for long-term gain. Consider the two choices we have. We can be living according to, or submitted to, or dominated by our sinful human nature, and we'll be saying, aren't we great, as we hide behind our fake reputation. We're wearing a mask, we're hypocrites. Or we can be living submitted to the Spirit and say, isn't God gracious? Isn't God good? 
So that's being controlled by the flesh or being controlled by the spirit. If we're controlled by the flesh, we'll be going, aren't we great? Focus on ourselves. Or if we're controlled by the spirit, the focus is on God and God gets the glory. So summary of what we've done today. How does confession liberate us from sin? Well, it promotes prayer. We receive the benefit of our church family praying and interceding for us. Secondly, confession provides protection. We escape the shame and condemnation of the devil. Thirdly, confession prevents pride. We stop pretending to be someone we are not and are content just to be ourselves, freely admitting our weaknesses and understanding that we live our lives to please God and God alone, being motivated by the love of God and not our reputation among people. Four, confession produces praise. Aren't we great or isn't God gracious are the two opposing mindsets or attitudes we can have. We can either be focused on making ourselves look good or focusing on exalting God and his goodness, love and mercy. Now, we started with effective prayer. There's two main things to consider. We must first confess our sins to another so we are practically righteous. And you can describe that as keeping short accounts with God by maintaining good relationships with both God and man. And secondly, our potential to be guided by the Holy Spirit to pray in accordance with God's will is directly proportional to how much of the Bible we have read and studied. He can't teach us or bring to our remembrance what we haven't read. And finally, we should read the Bible prayerfully and pray according to the Scripture. Reading the Bible is a conversation, not a monologue, and it's only when we are humble that God can teach us. So as you're doing your devotions, just remember, it's a conversation. Pray as you read, read as you pray. So, Father, I do thank you for what you've been teaching us in the book of James. And Lord, I just pray that as we finish putting this together about a prayer and confession, if there's anything that we need to change, we will. Show us if there's any fear of man in our hearts, Lord, and I pray that we will do what Jesus did and make up our minds, prepare our hearts to say, I will only do those things that please the Father. And we will experience that abiding relationship and we can say, along with Jesus, the Father is always with me. He will never leave me. And talking that in an experiential way. Of course, we know that you will never leave us. You are our God, you are our Father. But Lord, to walk with you, we experience the joy of the Lord. Help us to always experience that joy, Father. And Lord, help us not to have any false expectations when it comes to our quiet times and what we should or shouldn't be doing. Help us to be led by your Spirit and to be led by the Word of God. But help us to allow the Spirit to apply the Word of God as we read it and learn it so we can be praying and worshipping and living according to the will of God. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.